0: You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. This is Michael Litchens, your faithful editor and host today once again. And today we have a very familiar name to all of you who are at Catholic Exchange, Mark Gieschek. He writes the Unpacking the Old Testament articles that you see with us every Friday. He goes through the Old Testament readings, something we don't get a lot in Catholic circles, I have to admit. Mark is a professor at the Augustine Institute, where he teaches sacred scripture. He has a PhD from the Catholic University of America, and has apparently been to every other Catholic college, including yeah. Ave Maria, yeah. as well as the Augustine Institute. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be with you, Michael. And tell us a little bit. Yeah, I think a lot of our readers will be curious to know, you have a new
1: book coming out, is that correct? That's right, yeah. I wrote a book called Lights on the Dark Passages of Scripture so uh, I wanted to give it a, a subtitle, but uh, I don't I don't know if the publisher would want it. Something like the nasty stuff in the Bible that you always wanted to know about but were afraid to ask. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the dark passages is kind of a funny phrase in itself, but it basically just refers to all that tough stuff in the Old Testaments in particular that we mm-hmm. usually sort of read and then just kind of flip on by and kind of say, well, that's right. odd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know, I think, um, uh, the, the dark passages have become more important, I think, in, in recent conversation about, uh, belief in God. Uh, a lot of the new atheists have gone after these passages in the Old Testament and mm-hmm. have gone after Christians who believe in the Bible and are unable to adequately explain some of these passages in the Old Testament. And I think, you know, just as a Bible reader, it can be really bothersome, right? To, right. to come across a passage that seems to contradict everything else that you understand from the Bible about God, uh, Mm -hmm. and not know how to explain it. So, so my goal is to try to help people understand some of those really tough Gordian knots, uh, that we find in the old Testament. I think, I mean, in some ways it's, it's kind of funny, but I, I would say for a lot of us, um, we're really tempted to embrace some of the bad solutions for how to solve the problem of the dark passages and mm. I think that's sort of where, where the problem is. I, I think a lot of us will read the Bible, look at a, we'll look at one of these passages, say, for example, of Samson killing a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey or God killing people, for example, like the Egyptian firstborn or killing people in the flood of Noah. And we'll just sort of be like, well, that's weird and just kind of shrug and move on. Um, and never really deal with the problem. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a good idea. There's a great quote from Pope Benedict where he says, those passages in the bible which due to the violence and immorality they occasionally contain prove obscure and difficult and then he says it would be a mistake to neglect those passages of scripture that strike us as problematic so by just shrugging i think we're doing a disservice to the biblical text we're saying well i don't really care i think in other ways we can we can arrive at some bad solutions where we end up sort of over overly spiritualizing the text to the point where we're just ignoring the literal sense right mm-hmm. uh, and just saying, well, the literal sense doesn't matter, what the what the text actually says doesn't matter, the spiritual reading that I've come up with is superior. Right. Or even, a lot of people fall into pitting the god of the Old Testament versus the god of the New Testament.
0: I've heard that one a lot. Right, say, uh, well, the god of the Old Testament,
1: he's that big, mean, scary god who kills people. The god of the New Testament loves us, and he's nice, and it's wonderful, and we can just ignore that stuff. But, I mean, we, we really end up becoming, like, practical Marcionites at that point. Right, there's this ancient heresy of Marcion, where he basically this is really early, I think it's second or third century. He throws mm-hmm. out the Old Testament, throws out significant chunks of the New Testament. But that, I mean, that solution really doesn't work because the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament constantly, um, yes. and Jesus himself relies on the Old Testament. He quotes Moses, you know, and and so we can't just dismiss the Old Testament as if it were uh, a bad book, right, by a bad God. Right. Say the God of the New Testament is the good God. It's not that easy. And, and one last way that's maybe a little more on target and yet maybe more sinisterly incorrect uh, is this idea that all of those problems we encounter are just misunderstandings. Meaning that God didn't really want the Israelites to conquer Canaan. They just misunderstood what he commanded. God didn't really kill anybody in the Old Testament. They just misunderstood what was really going on. And what we end up doing in that case, right, is that we are, are sort of preventing the Bible from teaching us, right? We're saying, no, Bible, you're not allowed to say that because it's too dark and scary. Uh, and instead, I'm going to tell you what you ought to be saying. And and then the the Bible loses its power, right? We end up dictating to the Bible what it ought to say.
0: I can see that. Well, and I think a great example of uh, some of the dark parts you brought up actually was the killing of the firstborn or even uh, when God commanded to Abraham to slay Isaac. Right. How are we Catholics to understand that versus you know, the things we are told in the New Testament or in other parts of the Old Testament about love and not killing.
1: Right. Well, I mean, that's that's one of the main problems that I that I deal with in this book, right, is mm-hmm. looking at uh, God's commandments about killing. Because obviously the most preeminent commandment is that in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments where God says, thou shalt not kill. So it seems pretty clear uh, that we ought not to kill people. And yet there are those examples of God telling people to kill people. Um, and so those deserve really, uh, uh, really detailed attention. And, uh, the, the ones that you mentioned, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac, um, where Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac is a little easier to deal with because Isaac survives, right? Uh, right. and so, and the text even says that the, that God is testing Abraham's faith, right? So Abraham's waited a hundred years for a son, God then tells him, now that he has the son, all right, go sacrifice him on the mountain of Moriah. He goes to sacrifice him, and the angel stops his hand, and, and the angel of the Lord says, now I know that you really believe, right? Now, I mean, we could try to put an, a, another spin on it and say, well, maybe what's going on is Abraham was so affected by the culture around him, which believed in child sacrifice, that uh, God put him through this intensive exercise uh, to reveal to him in a way that would be permanently impactful the fact that God does not want children to be sacrificed. I don't know if that second explanation really works because the text really says this is a test of Abraham's faith. Um, mm-hmm. But we kind of have an out, right? Because Isaac doesn't die uh, in, in that case. Uh, there are other cases where children do die in the text. And yes. uh, and those are the ones that I think are, are even more difficult. Um, you know, if it's a natural disaster, like a flood or something, it doesn't seem so hard, if God is directly doing the killing, as in the case of the Egyptian firstborn,
0: yes, um,
1: or in the case of King David's baby with Bathsheba, mm-hmm. I mean, at that point, you can say, well, God is the Lord of the universe, right? Death is a punishment for sin. Um, and so God, as the Lord of the universe, as the judge, uh, is allowed, right, to give life and to take it away. Right. As Job says, right. Uh, you know, he, he giveth and he taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, but I think the, the ones, the, the moments in the old Testament that are most troubling to me are, are when God orders people to kill people. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he asks the Israelites or a prophet to act as his agent in the, the actual act of killing, um, I, there are several examples of this that uh, that stick out. The one for me that's always been the most uh, troubling is in First Kings chapter eighteen, when Elijah kills the prophets of Baal. So if you remember, Elijah has this huge showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, yes. right? And they set up, uh, you know, a, a big altar. And they're trying to call down fire from heaven and the prophets of Baal are, are dancing around and cutting themselves and calling up to heaven and no fire comes down, right? And then Elijah, mm-hmm. of course, has all this water poured on the, on the altar and he prays once and God, you know, sends down the fire on the altar, consumes the sacrifice. But then after that, we don't often don't read this part. After that, uh, Elijah personally executes all of the prophets of Baal. Uh, it says, I think it says he killed them with a knife. And, um, that's, that's a pretty dramatic moment. I mean, I, you might be able to say, right, that what we're looking at here, um, is the death penalty, right? This is not a murder, right? But these prophets have been leading the people of God astray after false gods. And, uh, that this kind of blasphemy and false prophecy, uh, and idolatry is punishable under the Mosaic law by death. And since the Mosaic law is not being enforced very well by the secular authorities, right? the prophet of God takes the role of uh, the enforcer. So he basically becomes judge, jury, and executioner uh, as appointed by God, and he executes these prophets. But that's a pretty dark moment.
0: <laughs> yes, I was about to say.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, that's uh, very disturbing. You know, there are other examples that are a little bit more obscure, like at the golden calf episode, uh, way back in the book of Exodus, you may or may not remember that after the people start worshiping the golden calf, right, the Levites rise up and help Moses, and they kill a bunch of people uh, for participating in this idolatrous worship. Um, and you see the same thing in Numbers 25, when people fall into the worship of the Baal of Peor. Um, so... I think what's going on there in a lot of these examples uh, is that people are rejecting God, right, and going after these false gods, and that that um, that action is in itself uh, a sin, right, a mortal sin deserving of death, and that by enlisting human agents, right, uh, in carrying out the death penalty, uh, God is allowing them to participate in His justice and he's teaching the people right how dramatically wrong it is to reject your maker right to reject the creator of the universe and to worship something that is not a god but that's a hard lesson right? that's a yes. very hard lesson to learn and, and and i think this is the thing about a lot of these dark passages is that they're part of what we catholics call the divine pedagogy right that god slowly gradually over a long period of time reveals himself to mankind and uh, that to understand the fullness of revelation, which comes in Jesus Christ, it's really helpful for us to go back to lesson number one, right? In Genesis chapter one, and work our way up to the life of Christ so that we understand how God is revealing himself. And uh, wh- mm-hmm. what it, what is hard about this, right, is that early on when God reveals himself, um, he reveals himself in a way that can seem really harsh, Uh, And, and really challenging. And yet, uh, through that, that's relatively simple revelation, he shows us the nature of the universe and our place in it. Right? That we are not God, that we are created to love and worship God, uh, and that when we sin, we bring death upon ourselves. This is one of the other things that I think is so frustrating maybe about reading these passages or even just about thinking through some of the problems is that um, our instincts are so shaped by the culture around us, right? And uh, one of the things that our instinct tells us, right, is that death is the absolute worst thing in the whole universe. And that's not true, right? So we have to remember that death, right, is not part of God's original plan for mankind. Death was not part of what God wanted for Adam and Eve. Death came as a result of our sin. So all death, all death, even the death of saints, right? All death is a punishment for sin. And, and once we wrap our minds around that reality, then all sorts of other things start to make sense, right? Now, obviously, the, the death, so for example, the death penalty, which we just saw in a couple examples in the Old Testament, uh, is an imperfect form of justice, and yet it reveals to us particularly in these Old Testament examples, that mortal sin is worse than death. It is better to die than to commit a mortal sin, right? Which is which is why many, many early Christians died, because they wouldn't offer one grain of incense to the false gods, right? And then they would be thrown to the lions. And they did the right thing, because it's better to die than to commit one mortal sin. and And God's Divine pedagogy, God's teaching in the Old Testament reveals that to us, even though it seems in a rather harsh way.
0: I see. Uh, It's intriguing to hear this, I have to admit. And I'm thinking now, uh, and I'd love to hear your response. I remember Penn Gillette, the famous magician and also a well known atheist commentator, he threw out that the best way to become an atheist was to read the Old Testament (laughs) because of all these dark passages we're talking about. Sure. What would you say to some of that?
1: Yeah, well, I think. I think reading the Old Testament is very important, and yet I think you need a guide, mm. right? I, I, doing it on your own, by yourself, uh, you might get into a little bit of trouble because, I, like I said, I think our mentality is so shaped by the culture around us. And, and yet, right, the Old Testament is, what, two-thirds, three-quarters of the Bible? Uh, it's crucially important. I mean, it's the great bulk of, of God's Word and so often we confine ourselves to the New Testament. And yet, when the New Testament talks about scripture, when it uses the word scripture, it's referring to the Old Testament, right? Because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Uh, so when, when St. Paul says, you know, all scripture is God breathed, he's referring to the Old Testament, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's useful for training and righteousness. He's talking about the Old Testament. So we need to pay attention to the scriptures that Jesus was reading, the scriptures that St. Paul was reading, the scriptures that St. Peter was reading, uh, because those scriptures, are life-giving. And yet it's, it's not easy, right? It's not easy. That's no. why we need a guide, we need to study, we need to think. Um, you know, there are certain passages in the Old Testament that are excluded from the lectionary precisely because they're so difficult and challenging. Um, and yet if we're willing to do the work of thinking through those passages, then they can become for us not a source of, of darkness and obfuscation, but a source of revelation and light, right? They can be, they can start to reveal to us how just and how good and how holy and how merciful our God really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we have the patience to read the word that he's given us, then I promise you it will be very rewarding. If someone
0: wanted to start studying the Old Testament, like they're following your articles on Catholic Exchange or they're hearing this conversation, what's a good guide for reading through the Old Testament?
1: Well, wow, there, well, there are a lot. Um, there are a lot. I think uh, when the new... Uh, Ignatius Catholic Study Bible comes out. I think a lot of people will be very pleased with that and mm-hmm. be able to use that. But it's only coming out in bits and pieces so far for the Old Testament. I think uh, on a on a simple level, you know, using the principles that are in the Catholic Catechism, uh, which come in large part from Dei Verbum, which is one of the documents from Vatican II, can be a great help. Right, the idea of reading the Scripture as a whole, right in its in its content and unity. So realizing that everything that you're reading in the Old Testament in some way foreshadows the New Testament, and everything in the New Testament in some way reflects on the Old Testament, uh, and trying to keep those in balance. St. Paul himself, right, is a great guide to reading the Old Testament. If you read Mm -hmm. Romans, for example, and you make a good study of it, you'll notice how many times he quotes the Old Testament, and how many different parts of the Old Testament he quotes. And then if you go from St. Paul back into the Old Testament passages that he quotes, I think that can be a great way to start to, to get it the way he does um, i mean there there's some other great tools out there i mean you're probably familiar with um the great adventure bible study by jeff cavens and tim gray uh, or their book uh their book uh which is called walking with god and mm-hmm. uh there are several other uh, uh books and resources about the old testament that try to help us see the big picture of the old testament um i think my book will make a, a small but significant contribution and going in directly after those those difficult passages uh, and trying to explain them uh, one after the other after the other.
0: Very good. And to go back to some of these, uh, what we call the dark passages, for those of us who have had to deal a lot of study at, through the old passages, and I know it's not just us living in the modern world, some great philosophers, for example, that's why I brought up Isaac, because that was something I remember studying philosophy, a sure. lot of philosophers wrestled with. How are we to look at this, be it to not fall into the idea that there's a God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament? Language, by the way, I still heard when I was studying for my theology degree <laughs> when we should have known better. But how do we not fall into that idea yeah. and think of this as still God?
1: I think I think there are two answers to this question. So one, one is punishment and one is the cross. So one of the cultural sensibilities that a lot of us Americans carry around is a, a, an allergic reaction to punishments. Um, I don't know what exactly it was, right? But you'll hear people tell stories about how they were smacked by nuns, uh, with rulers back in the fifties, you know, at Catholic school. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and lots of schools have eliminated all forms of punishments. Uh, and, uh, you know, and you also see things like grade inflation, or I remember going to this uh, rodeo where they had a, a, a mutton bust race, where they have little kids who ride on, on the backs of sheep in a race. Uh, and after it was over, all of them got four foot high trophies. Right? Yes. You know, so there's this is kind of like leniency in our culture. Uh, and yet we're so bipolar about it. Our prisons have more people in them than any other prisons in the world. We imprison 700 people out of every 100,000 in our country. Whereas most nations, it's less than 200. Right. So we have this kind of weird relationship with leniency and punishment in our culture that needs to be corrected. And I think when we read the Old Testament and read the New Testament, we start to understand the purpose of punishment. Right? Mm-hmm. Punishment is meant not as a vindictive act or a sort of punitive, nasty thing that people do to you when you do something bad. Punishment is meant to restore the order of justice. Punishment has a yes. purpose. It, and it, And when someone is punished justly, then it restores the order of justice and life can proceed in a just way. And this is why uh, a kind of false mercy, right, a false leniency uh, that gives trophies to everyone, right, gives everyone all A's all the time, no matter, you know, what, that sort of false leniency leads us to an unjust kind of situation. And this is why the cross is so important, right? Because the cross is the greatest expression of God's mercy, but it's also the greatest expression of God's fierce justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the prophecies about Christ in Isaiah says it pleased God to bruise him. And that, I mean, that's pretty harsh. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, it almost sounds as though it made God happy, right, to punish his son. But, but Jesus takes the divine punishment upon himself for all of us, right? He takes the punishment for sin upon himself. And even though he is the only one who's totally pure, right? He's the spotless lamb. He's sinless. And yet he died for all of us. It's the greatest injustice in some sense. Right, Jesus did not deserve to die on the cross. And mm-hmm. yet we did. We did according to God's justice. And so by taking that punishment upon himself, right, he redeems us. He sets us free. And he's able to save us and not just save us in an unjust, sort of lenient kind of way where he just sort of lets everybody off the hook. No, he's able to save us in perfect justice. Right, so God the savior and God the just judge are the same God. And I can
0: definitely see that coming throughout. Um- When we're looking at, uh, some of these dark passages and asking ourselves these questions, what's, do you have a particular reminder or a particular passage you'd like to go back to to remember that this God is in fact the same God?
1: Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) I mean, uh, in some ways it's Genesis 22, right, in the sacrifice of Isaac, right, where at the beginning God says, go kill your son, and at the end he says, don't kill your son. There's that, there's that kind of, there's a kind of frustration with that that maybe these, you know, the philosophers wrestle with. I think Kierkegaard talked a lot about this passage, for example. Yes. Um, I think it also shows the kind of two sides of the coin, right? That on the one hand, God is fiercely just. And yet on the other, he is fiercely merciful. I, I suppose there are, there are other examples of this as well. I'm trying to think of a good one. I mean, I mean, maybe another example would be um, the ten plagues in Egypt, right? And and particularly the plague on the, on the Egyptian firstborn. God gave Pharaoh nine, ten chances to get out scot-free, mm-hmm. right? He could have just let the people go and everything would have been fine, right? Um, and nobody would have died. But in Pharaoh's stubbornness, right, he doesn't let them go until the worst possible plague happens, right? The plague of, of the firstborn. Um, so there's this great mercy and patience in God that he's willing to wait uh, for people to repent. Um, even the story about the Canaanites is very similar. Right. We, we remember, you know, how the, how God tells the Israelites to conquer Canaan, Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 20. But if you, if you read that uh, without recalling Abraham's conversation with, with God way back in Genesis chapter 15 about the Canaanites, God says, well, I would have you conquer Canaan now, but the Canaanites sin is not yet complete. Right. I'm giving them more time to repent, basically. Um, right. And he waits hundreds of years before he brings down the hammer. So, I mean, okay, one other great example, maybe this is the best of all, is in, uh, the book of Jonah, right? When God mm. sends Jonah to Nineveh, and, and Jonah hates Nineveh, right? He doesn't like these people, he wants them all to burn, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and the message that he gives to Jonah is, you know, four days more and Nineveh will be destroyed. And all the people repent. So, God is, is at the, 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 the place where he wants, you know, he's, he's about to execute his justice, and yet he gives the people one last chance. They repent and he shows them mercy. And I think the same goes for us, right? That that God uh, wants us to live in perfect justice. He wants us uh, to obey his law. He wants us to keep his commandments. And yet mm-hmm. when we fall short, right, he's more than willing to meet us halfway, right? To make up the difference, to hold out a hand uh, and to help us repent and come back to a right standing with him through the blood of his son.
0: As my final question of our little interview here, I do want to ask uh, you will clearly have a love for the Old Testament. and Many, many of us don't read enough of it. What are some good reasons for a Catholic to dive into the Old Testament? Wow.
1: Well, they're, they are manifold, many. But um, maybe the first place where we'll think of contact with the Old Testament for us Catholics is in our treasury of prayer, the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, if you pray the Liturgy of the Hours, or any, in any of us, many, versions uh the psalms are at the heart of it if you go to mass the psalm is at the heart of the readings in mass and the psalms are such a great way to get in touch with the lord because they allow us to pray to god with god's own words and so i would say the psalms are probably the doorway in to the old Mm -hmm. testament and yet once you get into the psalms and you get hooked right You'll start to see that the Psalms are making references to other things going on in Scripture. Some of the Psalms retell the story of salvation history. Some of the Psalms are prophetic. Some of the song, Psalms talk about Christ. And when you start getting into the Psalms, you're going to get start wanting to get into the story of David. And so you'll mm-hmm. go back to First and Second Samuel, right? Uh, and if you want to understand salvation history, you have to go back to the Torah. You got to read Genesis and Exodus. If and, and if you want to understand what what happened with the whole Babylonian exile, you're going to have to go t- toward the end of 2 uh, Kings. And, yes. and it all starts to come together and, and weaves this beautiful tapestry of revelation that includes right not just stories, which is what we're most familiar with, but also poetry and prophecy and advice for daily life. Right, The Proverbs are such a great great way to get into the Old Testament. Um, some of these um, Bibles that are produced for you to read in a year, right, they give you, I think it's four chapters of Scripture, and then they often give you a psalm uh, and one proverb, and it's it's such a great practice to keep those proverbs in our minds. You know, whether it be you do one a day, you know, all throughout Lent, or 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 whether you just read one proverb a week, it's such a great way to carry around God's wisdom within you, uh, and to think about how you can live your life for the Lord um, by by reflecting on this ancient wisdom contained in the Old Testament. So there's so much there. You know, and one of the one of the places that is so beautiful that so few of us have read. Uh, is the deuterocanonical books, right? So, for example, the Book of Wisdom and the Book of Sirach, right? Which are books in our Catholic Bible that aren't in the Protestant Bible are such mm-hmm. great treasuries of wisdom. They're so beautiful. And yet so few of us read them and know those texts. Um, and it, it's, it's so wonderful to get to know those texts. It's almost as though when you start reading them, you're like, oh. Yes, it's like meeting an old friend or something. You're thinking, oh, of course, I should have been reading this all along. Well, so anyway, that's my plug for the Old Testament. I think it's more than worth our time to spend, uh, to spend it with God's holy word on a daily basis.
0: Quite agree. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure to have you here as always. I know many of our listeners will continue to read your articles, which are always such a pleasure to read. And thank you so much. Where can people learn more about
1: your work in this upcoming book? Yeah, so uh, you can take a look at Amazon.com and look up my book, Light on the Dark Passages mm-hmm. of Scripture, uh, or take a look at my blog, which is CatholicBibleStudent.com. Uh, and I'm also, just today actually, I'm launching a new YouTube channel uh, called, wait for it, Bible Broccoli. Uh, <laughs> so I put up my first YouTube video. I'll be talking about the dark passages of Scripture on that channel uh, for for a while. And uh, and hopefully through all those different channels, you'll be able to track me down.
0: Okay, great. We'll have all those links up on our show notes. So if you're listening to this via iTunes or Stitcher, go to CatholicExchange.com and you can pick those up. Well, once again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been a real pleasure to have you.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Michael.
0: It's my pleasure. And to all of you, like I said, go to CatholicExchange.com. Mark is published every Friday here on CE.com. He hasn't missed a Friday yet. I hope we keep that up. And I will look forward to hearing from you. If you want to email me, editor at CatholicExchange.com. God love you. Have a wonderful week.